0: Hello, this is Richard Wolfie Wolf, the voice you are now listening to. And uh, if you're hearing me, then you've luckily come across my podcast, Wolf and Tune. I play that funky music. Yeah. So, welcome to Wolf and Tune. I am very excited today, and I know you usually say that, but this is a little bit different because this is somebody that came to my attention through one of my guests. And we're going to get into that detail a little bit later, that very interesting story. But my guest today is Orville Hain, a vocal coach who is an extraordinary, not only vocal coach, but a um, practitioner of a unique kind of meditation, which for musicians is really spectacular. So Orville is a renowned teacher who has worked as a vocal instructor at the Banff Center for the Arts in Alberta, Canada at Humber College's internationally acclaimed music program in Toronto and at other colleges in the Toronto area. He has trained over a 1,000 singers of all levels over the past three decades and is also the founder of the Singer's Body Training Method. He has an international clientele of singing students from Los Angeles to Peru, and he's coached film actors like, get a hold of this, Mike Myers, one of my favorite comedians, Jessica Alba and Telma Hopkins. So, welcome to the Wolf and Tune podcast, Orville.
1: Richard, it is a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me.
0: So, I heard about you from Dr. Chaim Newman. Yes, uh, who was my guest? Dr. Newman is a uh, renowned expert on the psychology of people in the music community, and uh, he's also a, a great practitioner of mindfulness and teacher of mindfulness and. When I asked him how he started to get interested in meditation in a serious way, he mentioned his vocal coach. And he said that his vocal coach uh, started to do certain exercises with him, one called the resonance exercise. And that was his first experience in meditation. So when I heard Dr. Newman say that, I said, I gotta meet this guy, I gotta talk to this guy. So uh, it really is a great pleasure to meet you and speak with you, so tell us, how did you start with this technique of resonance?
1: There are quite a few different components that led to it. It wasn't uh, it wasn't an instantaneous discovery, but the most recent element was that I <laughs> went to a, a full ten day vipassana tre- retreat because my girlfriend was into Vipassana, and I wanted to better understand it just in case the relationship went <laughs> went further. Um, and it ended up being an absolutely brilliant experience for me. So that Vipassana was the most recent dabbling in um, in meditation for me. And the, the Vipassana that I did specifically was the one that is run through Gwenka G. And uh, prior to that, I had dabbled in uh, some transcendental meditation. Why did you stop with TM?
0: What did TM not fulfill for you that you needed to find elsewhere?
1: I'm not sure I really know the answer to that question, beyond that it wasn't connecting for me emotionally and uh, intellectually. We've talked a bit before about how, you know, there's so many different forms of meditation and uh, they all have they have one thing in common, they all have an object of focus. And, and what really spoke to me with Vipassana was that it was based on an observation of sensation. And that really, really spoke to me because as a musician, especially as a singer, um, sensation was, is incredibly important for my understanding of my own instrument. Um, I've had, you know, along the way, I've had the opportunity to meet some pretty incredible musicians. One that was quite transformative for me was a, a deaf harpist by the name of Anna. Um, and we've lost since lost touch, but listening to her play was uh, a revelation for me. And she did it all through touch. She would stand, uh, she would play a full size harp, a uh, barefoot on a plywood riser that her father had built for her. And she would lean the harp up against her jaw and she would play it like that. And that's how she processed sound.
0: So it was through the, the vibrations.
1: Through the vibrations, and so I met her at a time when she was just getting back into playing. She had, had almost, uh, quit completely until she had the opportunity to meet Evelyn Glennie, who is a Grammy-winning uh, percussionist from Scotland.
0: Right, I've seen her. She's amazing. Same,
1: same kind of thing, right?
0: She's deaf, and she and she plays all kinds of percussion instruments in
1: time. Plays in time, beautiful tone.
0: And it's all about vibrations
1: all about vibrations and to see her doing uh see her doing even some free improv stuff and her responding in real time to what another musician a guitarist in this particular instance was playing and to be able to change what she was doing melodically and rhythmically there there was something there There there's something there and that and that for me was an early model that came long before vipassana and, and so when I found myself in my first retreat and then my second through fourth, fifth retreats, the notion that m- my body would be able to process, understand, recognize uh, the sensations of vibration be- became uh, more and more relevant to me. I mean, the very first time I sat down in <laughs> my first Vipassana retreat, there were a lot of distractions that were going on. Uh, I, I had a really bad head cold. I was dealing with a lot of lower back stuff. I am not the most flexible person. I was I was the person at the retreat. I can relate to that, certainly. <laughs> Went into the closet, and I was the guy that had 12 pillows, and I was cramming them into every nook and cranny to try to find a position where I wouldn't be in pain when I was doing the retreat, uh, until I had the opportunity to chat with with one of the facilitators, and he said, "Well, you know, maybe your back will fall apart, but if if you don't use all those extra pillows, that maybe something else will happen. Maybe maybe your body will figure it out. Maybe you'll get a heart attack. <laughs> I'm hoping I'm hoping not. I am definitely more prone to to uh, building up stress in my life." Just have to have a child who's a high-performance tennis player. That'll do it. Um. Well, I disagree with
0: that guy that you consulted. He should have just tell you, sit in the chair. Sit in the
1: chair. Sit in the you know chair. what? And there were chairs in the back, and he did actually say if you needed to, you could go, you could go and sit. Um, but what was really interesting for me was my body did figure it out. My my body did sort it out, and there were a lot of re- uh, revelations that uh, that came up as a result of that process not to say like my back still isn't uh, my best attribute but i learned things like pain for me a revelation that pain wasn't what i thought it was what what i believed it to be and by sitting with it uh, i was able to process it in a different way or let it pass
0: By the way, that's extraordinary that you could do that. I mean, people that can do that. There are people that can do that. You are one of them. And that's very laudable and admirable. I really admire that. I couldn't do that. I had to sit in a chair. I stopped meditating for years from college to decades later because I couldn't do those contortions. Right. And since I learned that they say that the next Buddha, when he comes back, uh, when he reveals himself, will be meditating in a chair.
1: That is uh, that is good to know and inspiring. <laughs> After all, why wouldn't he? They make such amazingly ergonomic chairs nowadays. Exactly. When he was <laughs> when he was meditating,
0: they didn't have chairs. That's why he had That's to right. sit like that.
1: That's right. That's the only you reason. He had to find a comfortable tree to set up against and uh... Exactly.
0: <laughs> and some grass it was all, you know, grass and now you have chairs. Right.
1: Absolutely. So, uh, I mean, connecting to that idea, the students that that I work with that do the resonance exercise, they can can sit in a chair if they want to. They can sit on the ground with their legs crossed if they're comfortable with that. And very often, uh, I will have students do this exercise standing uh, because for the most part, most of them are performing standing. So them uh, having an individual have this experience of being able to find this meditative space while they're standing really fits in with the, the goal the goals that they will have for the way they they choose to deliver their music lovely so you know so the first the first of a passion retreat i probably sh- you know should have been focusing a little bit more at times on my breathing and on sensation in the body but it i i do remember one day where I wrote the entire course (laughs) in, in my head around, hmm, thinking to myself, you know, if in in Vipassana, ultimately an individual can get to a point where they can recognize vibration at the subatomic level, well then, you know, if someone's humming, that vibration would be like a jackhammer in comparison, right? If I can feel something really subtle, being able to feel the, the, sounds that are emanating from one's vocal folds and the way that those vibrations will travel through the body because the body is such a magnificent uh, conductor of sound that I became very curious about exploring that connection between sound and this practice of observing more deeply the sensations that are arising in the body and in the beginning students are often prone to hum louder and we say now just allow yourself to to hum really subtly because sure you can you can you can make it louder it becomes easier for your mind to be able to perceive but we don't want to spoon feed the mind we we want the mind to get better at letting go of the chatter and going deeper into feeling the instrument. So as students would get into the process, gradually they would start to become quieter internally and they would start to uh, log into the sensations that are taking place in their body. It was not a common experience for someone to be to start and to be able to feel their voice throughout their entire body that that I don't think I ever had one student who was able to do that the first time they did it. But over the course of several uh, sits with it, they would start to notice that they could map their body could travel a little bit further through their body and still observe the vibrations that are emanating from uh from their voice
0: that's amazing so they're humming and they're feeling the vibrations from head to toe
1: that yeah eventually and when i say eventually well they're
0: trying to observe it
1: exactly And, and this is one of the things one of the points that i i make uh when when individuals are doing it because i i've had experiences where people do in fact try to observe the vibration and and that effort can get in the way of them actually accomplishing it so to give you a sort of a breakdown or a nutshell uh, of the the kernel of the idea is that really the only thing i'm asking any individual who's doing this to do is to simply observe observe um, and in the guided version the i'm sort of taking them through their body so i'm saying okay we're on the tongue we're moving up to the nostrils up the bridge of the nose wherever we're going they have a destination uh, that makes it easier for them to know what they're doing and their objective is to observe whether or not they can feel the object which in its pure form is vibration on that location And then we, we travel through the body. So I say, observe, you find the object, you uh, recognize that it has a location. As you're doing this, if you can stay in a non-reactive place, your equanimity will start to balance out based on my explorations with all these students. I think of equanimity as an elevator, the more balanced they are, the deeper they go into subtler sensations. So, as they go into subtler sensations, they start to recognize that this object, which has a location, actually has specific characteristics to it. Um, I, I, last night, I, I did a clinic with a group of people and I got them to do a simple humming exercise where I got them to hum, uh, let's see if my keyboard's on. I just got them to hum uh, a triad and we just spent 30 45 seconds doing it and then i asked them uh describe for me please what it is you felt and uh each person that was in the clinic described they said oh well i felt something on on my upper lip i felt in my bridge my nose i felt something in my forehead I felt something in my chest one person said they felt something going down their arms every single person described it this way and then When I asked them what they all had, what these descriptions all had in common, they all realized at a certain point that the only thing all these descriptions had in common was location. It was just the location of the object. And prior to that, I had someone describe an object. I said, look at that object for. 15 seconds, close your eyes, describe it. When they describe the object, it was like, oh, it's red, it's shiny, it looks like it's made out of metal. It's, uh, you know, I would estimate it's probably about 10 feet away from the camera. It looks like it might be heavy. All of these details, these characteristics come out of what they see. And I said to them, now imagine if I had asked you to close your eyes and describe that object, and the only thing that you could say was, that object's 10 feet away from me, nothing else. And they realized at that moment how inept they are at being able to process sensation at the level of touch in comparison to how great they are doing at doing it with their eyes. And so that was, that was a way into it. And it's like, okay, so now you need to understand what some of those characteristics are so that you know what it is you're looking for. So how does that relate to sound? Sound for me is our way of understanding vibration. And and so when I'm working with singers, I am guiding them away from sound and towards skipping the middleman, so to speak, and processing the vibration directly. Um, Because that vibration object, like this apple that is red, that vibration once they go a little bit deeper the equanimity is balanced out they start to notice that that vibration has characteristics it will feel heavy or light it can feel, there can be a temperature associated with it there can be a feeling of pulsation or a feeling of movement and this is all subjective it's their interpretation of of what they are feeling And yet at the same time, there is a consistency across people that they do, once they start to go deeper, they get to go, they start to go a little further than simply, simply the location and the object that there is a vibration there, that that vibration has characteristics. So do two people agree? No, no, no. It's it's absolutely subjective from that perspective. But what's interesting, about, I'm just going to go back a little bit
0: because you talked about equanimity. Yeah. Is the quality of the observation. At the beginning, when you're talking about, you just observe the vibrations while you're humming. Is that right? Absolutely. So that's mindfulness, right? It's it's observing in a neutral way, just to, to watch it, not to interfere with it, not to try to change it. That's a fantastic way of practicing mindfulness, of learning how to concentrate in a mindful way, I think that's that's very ingenious.
1: <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you. At the same time, I I have to acknowledge that there does not exist a single element of the the stuff that I've been teaching that did not exist predating me. Um, it's just the influences that I have been exposed to have have added up in a specific way that have brought to my mind certain questions that I absolutely felt I needed to understand. When I was in grade three, I was plucked out and chosen as a child soloist um, in my church choir. And I didn't go out to audition for it. It was the sort of thing, I I went to a Catholic uh, school, one day we were supposed to do something for show and tell i forgot something a friend of mine forgot something so we went off in a corner we came up with an idea that we were going to come back and sing the monomena song from sesame street and i did the crazy scat solo on it right so we came and did that My teacher went, oh my God, you have an amazing voice. She told the priest. The priest came over. They talked to me. They talked me into into auditioning. Next thing I know, I'm the child soloist in an adult choir. And I was terrified. I was absolutely terrified. And the more I did it, the more I started to become locked up inside. And then in grade seven, I had a horrendous experience where... Uh, I got up and sang uh, a wonderful Burt Bacharach song, Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head, got up to sing this in front of an audience, and it went dreadfully, dreadfully. And I didn't sing a note again for five years. And it wasn't until I started songwriting that I started writing again. And then this hunger to understand why I lost my voice and how I could undo that, and then, when I started first tutoring people and seeing the same issues, really wanting to understand and help those individuals to be able to untie those knots. you know this, this the resonance exercise is is a long way down that train. It's but it is connected to that entire journey going all the way back. And it was funny, actually, I didn't realize until a couple of years ago because um, improvisational jazz, was a really big thing for me, and I I I did a lot of scatting. I did a lot of free improv stuff. Uh, I did some. I had some wonderful opportunities to record and perform with Kenny Werner, who is just mind-bogglingly gifted musician. And it wasn't until just a few years ago that I realized the first time I sang in public, I scatted. You know, it was when I was in when I was in grade grade three and did that Manamana piece. Was the the first time I improvised, but impro- improvisation is an important part of how I teach as well. So, back to the
0: resonance. So we're observing the um, the vibrations in a neutral way, in a mindful way, meaning it's evaluation, no judgments. Then you start to get more granular with it and try to describe it and look for different qualities. So, that's more of a of a colon thing. It's just like you know. Does the dog have Buddha nature, and it's trying to search for the answer? So, where, what, what else can I say about the sound? But you're you're training people in
1: equanimity, right? And that's what you're trying to to develop in them. You know, at the same time, they are developing the equanimity, and it is crucial um, to moving away from any kind of fear-based practice, whether it be. Uh, Fear-based performing, and and I'm quoting here uh, Kenny Werner. He would talk about fear-based composing, fear-based um, uh, practicing, fear-based um, performance, and and for me in my personal journey, I had I had the opportunity to study and mentor under Kenny Werner, which was one of the richest experiences in my life, and then. After that, Vipassana came in and filled in filled in more of those pieces. So I think where we're going, where you're going with this, the next part of that is that as the equanimity gets more balanced and they get more granular with it, that's when the mind starts to throw up these these various things. And it's important that I make a point to the students now that. These sensations are going to arise to your mind in one of four different ways. They're either going to arise effortlessly. Let's say I'm paying attention to my center of my forehead. I'm going to feel something effortlessly. Or they're going to arise to my mind with effort. I think I'm feeling something, but I'm not sure. And it could be that the awareness of it, its it's on the horizon. It's just starting to come into focus. The next way would be, not at all. They'll go across a part of their body completely blank. Or they'll go across a part of their body and there will be a gross solidified sensation. So there'll be a huge itch on their nose. They can't feel anything granular because they've got this ridiculous sensation. And the instruction is that if they merely observe the state in which they're receiving or not receiving, information that in itself is good enough to maintain their equanimity. So I don't want them to go looking for specific sensations because the danger is, especially after they've done enough of this is the danger is that they start making a list of sensations they like and sensations they don't like, in which case they start searching for the ones they like and creating avoidance. And As I point out to them, this is something I learned from Vipassana. There are five enemies. To the balanced mind, there's craving, there's aversion, doubt, anxiety, and the dull or sleepy mind. You know, for any person, as a as a kid who ever had to cram for an exam and started falling asleep on the textbooks, they understand what the dull or sleepy mind is. So, so these things will flare up, and I'll say to them, if you come across a spot that's blank, just acknowledge, okay, it's blank. That's totally fine. I'll stay there for a few seconds and then move on. So you're absolutely right. The priority is that they are maintaining the equanimity at all costs. And what we found as we had more and more students doing this was that they would go through intense periods where a particular, a particular sensation or distraction would be prevalent and then it would lift and be replaced by another and then lift and be replaced by another as they were working through these and and even having it feel amazing can be an incredible distraction again to quote uh something kenny werner said which i will tell my students about because it's so useful when things are working that can be like a trojan horse it's so wonderful. It's like, oh, the horse has been delivered. It's beautiful. It's hand carved, it's painted. Someone must really love us. Let's take it in, have a big party, feast, get drunk, dance around it. And then everyone falls asleep in a drunk stupor. The belly of the horse opens and everyone's throats get slit, right? And that happens That happens all the time to musicians. They start to think, oh my, my goodness, I've got it. This solo is going really well and the whole thing just starts to unravel, right? So developing equanimity, even in the face of when things seem to be working really well, to say, you know, this too will pass. It's like acknowledge it, but you have a job to do, which is to get back to the knee, because that's the part of the body that you're focused on. And then ultimately, the goal that, that I hope my students will start to recognize in doing this is that, even though equanimity is of incredible importance in this whole process, is that they start to recognize that the one constant is change, and that everything changes. I've seen too many singers and instrumentalists who had a bad day that turned into a bad decade, and they will hold on to something very tightly, And so this gives them a way to practice processing change. A a bad itch comes up and they just sit and observe it and it goes away completely by itself. And they say, man, I didn't have to do anything. It went away. So do you see that this
0: principle of equanimity and appreciation of impermanence, do you see that carrying over when you're teaching these students uh, on a musical level? Do you hear that it carries over into the rest of their lives? I mean, you're alluding now to an itch. So the assumption now I'm getting is that you think that this will be a quality that they develop.
1: Almost inadvertently, yes.
0: Inadvertently, right? <laughs> it's it's a conditioning of the mind and body to react a certain way or not react or not respond in a certain way. It's a it's conditioning.
1: And none of this was ever my intention. You know, it's like uh, th- this resonance exercise is one of many tools that I apply when I'm working with singers. And what I have discovered with this process, I, I can describe what's gonna happen, what they're supposed to be doing, but the bottom line is the discoveries are so personal, subjective, as you mentioned, that even if I told 100 people that something happened to one person, it could very likely not happen to any of the others. So I see this process as a way for them to get to know their instruments. Very often, the things that will come up for them on stage will absolutely come up when they're doing this exercise by themselves. A a very quick example would be, I would, um, over the years, have specific individuals say to me that they experienced incredible nausea when doing the exercise for the first few times. And when I would ask them, what their experience was with stage fright, every single one of those individuals said they suffered from extreme stage fright. And with the individuals who kept doing the exercise and found that the nausea started to go away, they started to find that when they would go up on stage that the stage fright didn't have the same impact. So there is a connection between the two and I also, I have to say, because I know that there are a lot of wonderful vocal teachers out there, and there are a lot of different approaches and different methods, and some of them are more flexible, and other methods are very, very rigid. One of the guiding principles for me is that when I'm working with any singer, that I have to be willing and prepared that at any moment, I may have to ask that student to Do something a particular exercise in a particular way that goes against everything I think I already know about singing and it happens on a regular basis where I will have a student do something and this is where I'm saying improvisation intuitiveness are really important to the process for me I will just out of the blue say um, I, I think we need to try this and I'll give them something and I've been teaching for over 30 years and I'm still Finding myself in situations where I'll ask a student to do something I've never ever asked any other student to do, and it probably shouldn't work, but nine times out of ten it ends up it ends up working.
0: Yeah, and you talk about uh, getting nauseous. So I did your the demo, and I loved it. By the way, I, I had a great time. I love it, um, but I also started to get nauseous until I realized that you can't hum while you're inhaling. You have to own. You can only hum when you're exhaling. As soon as I realized that, which which happened uh, quickly enough, I felt much better.
1: Al Jarreau used to do some incredible singing while inhaling, that was was remarkable. I tried doing it for a little while. All I did was dry my throat out <laughs> completely.
0: So well, you know, in jazz there are these saxophones, the breathing cycle, you know.
1: I still haven't seen a singer who can uh, s- circular breathe.
0: Maybe the the, the Tibetan chanting has something to do with that. I I don't know. It's possible. Maybe. Well, we know one student already who got inspired to to delve deeply into mindfulness as as a serious practice and study because he took these... Uh, resonance exercises. Now, is that an anomaly or do you hear more singers getting more interested? What what have you been observing on that?
1: Uh, Yeah, definitely. There have been other individuals who have moved, uh, have decided that they want to explore meditation. I don't believe, now this is just me, I don't believe that the percentage of students that are in my class who decide to do that are any different than the percentage of people in, out in the real world who one reason or another are attracted to it. It just happened to be that for Chaim, that was the time and the place where he made that connection. There was a, a gymnast who had a very similar story, story to his. Uh, she worked with Cirque du Soleil and she fell during rehearsal and fractured her spine and fortunately was able to to walk. But they had to fuse her three vertebrae together, and five years later, when she came into the class, still suffering from incredible, incredible uh, phantom pain, and she said to me, she let me know at the beginning, and then she said, but I, I want you to know that doctors say I'm completely better, and I, I see this as an opportunity to, to sort this out, so I'm going to do my best to stay standing. And um, first three weeks, excruciating pain, you could see it on her face even in the class. And then around week six, I I completely forgot. We we hadn't talked about it and I, I asked her about it and she said, oh no, I haven't experienced any pain in weeks now. Mm.
0: Now, one of the things that your technique, the resonance technique, has in common with the techniques that I've developed and I talk about in my book, In Tune, Music as the Bridge to Mindfulness, Instead of humming, like you have a triad right, and it's connected to the breathing, right? You inhale and then when you exhale, you're humming this triad. By the way, you can only hum when you exhale, so don't try humming when you inhale, right? (laughs) Everyone,
1: please remember that. And you keep your mouth closed when you're humming? So uh, I'll instruct students to hum on an N. That rather than an M. That was something that one of my early uh, singing teachers, who was a classical singer, would say, hum on an N because then the lips are slightly parted, Uh, your tongue is up against the palate just behind your upper front teeth, and that's how you seal the mouth. When you hum on an M, there's such a backwash of vibration that it becomes, in, in essence, a distraction. So if you keep your lips slightly parted and you do a, mm, 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 then you allow some of that to escape. And and you do all of the breathing in through the nose on this exercise. And Well, this is
0: a digression, but when you talk about N and M, M is classic, right? Om and uh, amen, amen, man. It's all the same. So this is interesting. But what my point was that instead of doing this vocalizing with the humming, I ask people to hear the note in their mind. And as long as the note is playing, they're inhaling. And then another note comes in. And sometimes it's a triad. Sometimes you'll inhale on one note and then you exhale on two notes. Right. And the idea is whatever notes come in your mind are the right notes. You're not being fed what notes to hear. It's You're listening to your inner sound and your inner music, whatever your mind comes up with. The point of that it's is that it's, you're doing two things at once, and you talk about improvisation. So this is what It's it is. It's, you're composing music at the same time as you're composing yourself. And it'd be interesting, which I've never tried, but I'm gonna try this to start with humming and then go into the internal, you know, sometimes I hear a strum, sometimes it will be certain notes. Sometimes I do suggest that people use intervals. If you're gonna be meditating for hours on end, you gotta make it fun and interesting to focus on your breathing. So Pythagoras had this theory that the intervals, certain interval 181, 145, 1415, these are the music of the spheres, right? The universe is based on those vibrations. So, But that's getting arcane. But I think it's interesting (laughs) that we're kind of like bosom buddies on the way that- Yeah, absolutely. You've got people humming triads and I've got people hearing their mind create these triads.
1: Absolutely. And and the element of spontaneity, of improvisation, you have to give yourself permission to do that, to allow yourself to go with the first impulse. I, I think part of the reason why I, I got along so well with Mike Myers is because I had an appreciation for his ability to just be in the moment and say, say yes to things. And, and I had done obviously not as much work, but I had, I had studied at Second City. So on top of improv in music and jazz, um, I had done a fair amount of improvisational acting uh, stuff through Second City and theater sports in Toronto. And just the ability to be in the moment, to be flexible for me is crucial when I'm working with another student i had a student ask me actually at one point because i asked them to do something i'd never asked anybody else to do before and it worked and they said how did you know that that was going to work and i said well truth is i didn't the the truth is your body told me to tell you to do that the process of working with a singer It requires a lot of focus, a lot of concentration. All of your energy goes into observing the way they're standing, uh, the way they're breathing, what they're doing with their face, any little reactions that are going on. And you can read all of that stuff? That's what I've learned. That's what I've learned how to do. I couldn't do that in the beginning when I I remember my first two singing students that I had way, way back, I had two brilliant lessons with both of them and then nothing I did after that worked. And I went and talked to my teacher and she said, well, she felt that I I had been naturally gifted. So I learned very, very easily. And as she pointed out, I was gonna come across singers that had issues that I never had to deal with myself. And so I was woefully unprepared. But over time, um, I learned how to read people and the way I would describe it, because for me, it's really important that I demystify, uh, vocal lessons for students. It's, uh, something that one of my teachers once said to me, the mark of a good teacher is that they instill the good teacher within the student. So I see my job is a horrible business model, but I see my job as trying to get rid of my student as quickly as possible, right? (laughs) Because I want them to be self-sufficient, right? (laughs) I
0: was going to ask you, you have a three-minute demo, which we will play at the end of this podcast. And I felt after that three-minute demo that I got something out of it. So my assumption is that people could get something out of just one lesson, you know, if it's an hour, I don't know how long they are, that they would get a lot out of one lesson. But if they had more lessons, they would develop even more equanimity, more ability to feel the vibrations in their bodies when they sing, more intimacy with their body and, and being able to place their voice. Is there such a thing as an optimum amount of lessons or is that just so individual you can't even think about that?
1: It is It is very individual. I had, I had one fellow who came... Uh, to work with me about 20 years ago. He was a percussionist, so he already understood the concept of practice. I say to my students all the time, look, you're learning more than one thing when you're learning how to sing. You're learning to amass these techniques, but you're also learning how to develop a routine that is self-sustaining, and that is hugely important. Even with my college students, their first assignment is what I call the 21-day assignment, and I expect them Just ten minutes ten minutes of vocal technical practice Every day for 21 days because I know if that routine can become self-sustaining Then most of my work is done at that point the routine becomes the real teacher and I might steer them or guide them um, In a in a specific way. I'll say, you know I kind of feel like my job is like that of a doorman in front of a hotel and And, uh, I can't make you walk through the door, but I can promise you if this is an amazing hotel, so, so if you'll come in, you know, and, and you do the work, you'll find, you'll find the benefits. And then the other thing about reading and demystifying is that I'll say to students, look, it's, it's almost like in the beginning, what you really need is a translator, your body already knows what it needs in order for you to sing better but you're not hearing your body and you're not understanding it. So I'm here to pick up what you're sending to me and then repeating it back to you as a translator. And then from there, if, if what I gave you was the right thing, then uh, you will start to be able to release sound with less effort. It's not about what it sounds like. And I tell students, I never ask a student, "Now, what did you what did that sound like to you?" I never ask them that because singers are notorious for judging their voices when they hear them.
0: That's fantastic when you say the body is telling me, your body already knows how to make you a better singer. I'm going to interpret for you what your body already knows. So do they actually get to be better singers? Yeah. Absolutely. Is there a guarantee? If I if I sign up with you, will you guarantee I'll
1: be a better singer? What, right after how many lessons? <laughs> on my website, I've got this article, because I know I can't teach every person in the world, but I've got this article on my website um, that is designed to help people who are interviewing uh, teachers. I say, if, if you want to check out this article, it will give you a bunch of questions that you can ask prospective teachers and then if you click on the question i give you a sample of my thoughts around answers to those particular questions so that you can then gauge the level of knowledge of the teacher that you are working with one of the questions that pops up on the list is uh, are there any guarantees can you guarantee and I absolutely will never guarantee that a student is going to improve because there is too much of the equation that I have absolutely no control over, right? Whether or not they practice, whether or not they whether or not they're able to establish a routine. What about if I promise I'm gonna practice? If you promised you were gonna practice and you actually followed through on a daily basis, you would absolutely improve.
0: I can't wait. Because I tried my whole life to be a, a, a singer, and <laughs> as, which leads up to the, um, to the prize at the end of this podcast, <laughs> is that we are going to run a contest and people should be looking for. They should look up Wolf in Tune on Instagram because that's where the contest is going to be publicized. It also might be publicized on our website, which is richardwolf.net. That's spelled W-O-L-F, just like the animal wolf. And we're going to have a contest and the winner of the contest gets to have a free lesson with Orville and gets to practice the resonance exercise and the and the singer's body with the expert
1: I would be honored to do that. I don't know how free it will be because it it depends on what comes up in the process for them, right? So,
0: Well, I'm talking about monetarily it'll be free.
1: Monetarily. There will be no monetary cost for doing it. Absolutely. That is correct.
0: You know, and that's a piece with your whole personality and your whole worldview of equanimity and impermanence and compassion. You discovered something that was helpful for you. You found your voice, you lost your voice, and you found your voice very much through these kinds of exercises and training, and you wanted the world to know about it. Mindfulness did that for me too. I I came to a point in my life where I had panic attack, which was uh, like a heart attack, and mindfulness since then has put me in a state where I never have to worry about that again.
1: That's fantastic.
0: Is there anything that we haven't touched on as our time is running out here?
1: I think, you know, just again, to reiterate, because I say this to students all the time, the process I use in the singer's body will not lead to enlightenment. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You call it a
0: flawed form of meditation, by the way.
1: It is. It's a flawed form of meditation. The ultimate goal of any of the real forms of meditation is to achieve some form of hopefully at some point it might take many lifetimes to achieve uh, enlightenment and I was taught even through Vipassana not to mix which is exactly what I'm doing mixing not to mix (laughs) uh, anything with Vipassana right and so I've said it so many times to students look if Some of the elements of this are sparking something for you. And I know I said this to Chaim way back when. I said, go and explore Vipassana on your own. But understand, whenever you bring anything into meditation, a a goal. In this case, the goal is, I want to sing better. I want. As soon as you add, I want, you end up with a flawed form of meditation. And it's important that I say that to all of my students because I, I don't want to be, you know, some guru. That's not what I'm looking to do. But at the same time, I have to say that even as a flawed form of meditation, this goes way deeper for uh, a singer and even for instrumentalists that I've worked with in helping them to understand their connection to their instrument, than anything I've ever done before.
0: Okay, well, thank you so much, Orville.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me on as your guest.
0: Yeah, I'm excited to do more of these residence exercises, they're a lot of fun. <clears throat> and um, we are about to play, excuse me. <coughs> I warned you I was going to have to clear my throat a lot.
1: <laughs>
0: and well, we're at I the add? very end.
1: We're at the very end here, so there you go. If you need to go and clear your throat before doing the resonance exercise, uh, do that, but you may not need to.
0: Okay. Well, here, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for coming. And now we are going to play...
1: The Singer's Body Resonance Exercise. Yeah.
0: Love it. The Singer's Body resonant Exercise. Enjoy, everyone.
1: Wait. Not so fast.
0: Why? What's the matter?
1: We got to tell him about the contest.
0: Oh, uh, yeah. Why don't you tell him about the contest?
1: You want me to tell him about the contest? We're sharing a post on our Instagram page, at Wolf in Tune, that is a giveaway for a vocal lesson with Orville sharing the method of the singer's body that he talked about on the episode today. So if you're interested in that, look out for the post on our Wolf in Tune Instagram page. Again, that's at Wolf in Tune and enter to win a free vocal lesson with Orville there.
0: Thank you, Hannah. That was the incomparable Hannah Bowers, who you've been hearing about. And I also want to thank, besides Hannah, James Bianco, Anne-Marie Butcher, and Taylor Matthews. And uh, before uh, we actually play the resonance exercise, I just want to say I hope you can keep rising in a higher octave and let's you and I stay in tune. All right, here it comes.
1: The guided version of the resonance exercise. Now let's begin the process by paying attention to the breath. Pay attention to the way the air feels as it brushes past the outer surface of your nostrils. If you are patient, you will start to notice sensations. You may notice movement, temperature, pulsation, or weight. Don't question why these sensations are present, just observe them. You are going to hum on three notes. When you do this, allow yourself to continue to breathe subtly, Never breathe as if you were breathing for a singing exercise because this is not a singing exercise. This is a body awareness exercise. Allow the air to leave the nostrils. Allow the air to come back in and hum. Now bring your awareness to the full length of your tongue and just observe. Sensation, weight, temperature. Now bring your mind forward to the front centimeter of your tongue. And what does that feel like? to the tip of your tongue.